How many times have you been asked, what do you do? Or what does your dad do? Or what does your husband do? Aside from the possible conversation about how we could be better at not just assuming automatically that the men make all the money, we'll save that for another day. I always cringe a little at this question because it, of course, implies what do you do for work or how do you make money? What I'd love to change in our society is the idea that what we do or how we make money is the pinnacle of what defines us. What you do is so much more than how money comes into your bank account, right? Today, Neil and I are talking about his journey with this, the idea that what you do for work defines you. We're sharing his story of losing his job in a career he loved to moving into a job that humbled him to the core and how that led to him truly defining what his purpose is in this life. Well, we are going to talk about a phrase that I think is so interesting that you hear all the time. I've heard it since I was a little kid, and I remember even my parents explaining this to me when someone said to me, what does your dad do? And I came home and said to my mom, what is that even, what what are they asking? And she had to explain to me, oh, they mean, what does your dad do for work? What is he, you know? And so we get asked that all the time still too. People typically assume if they know nothing about me and they meet me, they'll just jump right to, what does your husband do? They don't ask me, which is fine. But it's such an interesting question to me because the way it's phrased is, what do you do? And what it what they're implying is, what do you do for work? What do you do to earn money? But that question to me says a lot, right? Because it kind of speaks to society's view of what someone does is how they're defined, what what someone does to make money or how they provide for their family or how they sustain themselves financially in this world equates to what do you do? So we're going to talk about that a little bit today because I think of that question and I kind of cringe sometimes because I, and I don't want anyone, if they've ever said that to me or to you or whatever, to feel bad. But I, that's a narrative that I would love to see society change because to me, what do you do should go so far beyond what do you do for work or what do you do to earn a paycheck that hits your bank account once a month or whatever, or however many times you draw on it. But I remember meeting you and it was like you would kind of light up or like like it was like Energizer Bunny when someone would ask you, so what do you do? You loved answering. Yeah, and I was trying to impress you too because you're extremely beautiful. Thank you. But even if it wasn't someone extremely beautiful asking you that, you know, that was something that I saw. And, and I'm not saying that was a bad thing, but there was just like this immediate confidence of like, oh, I do – I did medical device sales. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I and it was, I, I think for some reason, I really did enjoy it. It, it was something I'd love doing it. It was fun. I love the relationships. I love working with doctors. I got to go into the operating room. Like that was, that was a cool component of it. But I think really where the, the, in, like the value part of it, like my personal value came into play was I think it was viewed as at that time in my life, something that was, and, and, and I don't know, maybe I just saw it this way and it's like, not even that cool, but, but I, but people would be curious about it or like, Whoa, wow. How did you get into that? Or like, that sounds cool. Or, 
Well, because, come on, what was your perception of that when you, you have told me before, when you learned about this, you were like, wait, this is why I wanted to do it is I, I mean, I got into doing durable medical cells after, after I came home from my mission, but I heard about while I was doing medical cells, I heard about these guys. I'm like, oh, these guys that go into these operating rooms and they get their little laser pointer and they point at some parts and say, put a screw there, doc. And they make a bunch of money. And I'm like- Whoa. Without going to medical school. Yeah. Without yeah. going to, you know, and I'm like, that sounds amazing. Like, whoa. Like these guys, it, the perception was kind of built up that there was all this like money and they were loaded and rolling and right. it was like this kind of cool guy job. And I was like, whoa. And there's like a, an association with that job title that immediately says, oh, that person's successful. I just remember, especially observing people's reaction to you saying that was exactly like you're saying. They would always be like, oh, really? Oh, how'd you get into that? Where if you were to tell someone like, I'm a janitor, they'd be like, oh, oh, oh cool. janitor, cool. Okay. Like, no, well, anyway. and a lot of people would be like, whoa, can you, I've got a, yep. you know, brother yep. who's struck, can you get him a job? Like, can you help him or turn in a resume? Like people wanted into that. It was like a desirable place to be for a lot of Yes. When society sets it up that way, too, that's one of the first things you ask someone. It's literally within minutes of meeting someone, people will typically say, so what do you do? Yeah. And that is whatever your answer is, is their first assumption. Uh, Like you automatically can assume a lot of things about someone. Oh, this person's really dedicated. They went to a ton of school or, oh, this person must be really smart there. They develop apps or something or oh you're a salesman like you must be really friendly and personable and and really good at convincing people to buy stuff you know yeah let's move into how life changed for you so we moved to southern california like very 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 long story condensed down into something small we went to the temple i had this really strong impression that we needed to move to southern california which was so out of left field but you were excited about it. We both felt really strongly that was the right thing to do. You got a job offer. And through a series of totally unexpected little tender mercies, now that I look back on it, it kind of just felt like this miracle that landed us here. But anyway, so we moved to Southern California. We have just one kid, Annabelle, 18 months old. We move into it. We sell our house in Utah, move into a rental here. And you start working in San Diego. And maybe just tell us what that's like, what that was like. Very miserable. (laughs) (laughs) But why? Because you loved it before. Not successful at all on multiple fronts, but like coming into so much of it's built on relationships and not having any relationships at all. It was a smaller, like really small new product. No ground had been broken on it. Like that was my job to go in and get contracts and get a relationship. Literally from when the ground up. When you say up. relationships, someone who doesn't know medical device might not understand that. But it's like relationships. Just meaning like when you walk into a hospital, like when you used to walk into Davis Hospital, like people knew your face. They knew yeah, like. Or the doctors kind yeah. of know you. They're like, oh, this is, this guy's he's a good guy. Like mm-hmm. he's got good products. He provides a good service. Like let's listen to his you pitch. You know, you're like, okay, you can, it's, you can get it. People are willing to talk to you or right. want to talk to you or trust you. But when it's like, you're just Joe Schmo coming <laughs> in to sell them something, like people don't want to hear it. Right. If you don't have the relationship already or have some type of an end to, to get that relationship, 
it is just a grind. Like, and, and even more so, Utah is a very like small market and San Diego is like a huge market mm-hmm. or, or a big, significantly bigger market. So it, there's not really like they're, they're way more boxed out out here. Like it was harder to get in and talk to people. And so it was, it was a miserable situation and I knew it would be hard coming in, but I really felt I'm like, okay, we're supposed to do this. This all worked out. Right. And I just hit a wall. Um, and then at that time, you know, on the, on the spiritual side of things, like I'd been in recovery and, uh, from, you know, pornography addiction. We've talked about that in our story all the time and had been doing like, I don't know if I'd ever really was doing that well initially, but once I got into this scenario, like that was something that was just, it was, it was the perfect storm to really have a hard time. Well, when we moved to Southern California, I would say our marriage was in one of the lowest points it's ever been in. Don't you think? Like just as far as you and me getting along, like we were, we were really struggling because leading up to our wedding and our temple marriage, like we were in a great spot and then we got married and then it didn't take very long for kind of all the addiction stuff to come back up. And it was kind of up and down and up and down while we lived in Utah. But I would say it was on a down. When we moved here, it was kind of like, a okay, maybe this will be a fresh start. Maybe this will help us kind of come back up. But I felt like it just kept going in a downward direction. Because when, and this was something that I've talked about before, it was really helpful for me to hear and for someone to explain to me that an addict, when they are using or, or acting out or whatever on their addiction, it's not personal with their family trying to hurt anyone or whatever. It's pain management. It's like I'm sad or bored or lonely or discouraged or fearful or whatever. And those are like whatever your drug of choice is, is how you numb out those feelings. Instead of having to like sit in your feelings, it's easier to just like check out with whatever your drug is. And so obviously in a situation where things are extra challenging, if you're not already in a good spot, it's probably just going to make it worse. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's pain management. Really the, the addiction or what you do, whether it's drinking or drugging or whatever is, is the symptom, the underlying problem or the, the root cause of it a lot of times is fear or resentment or like in feelings of inadequacy or, mm-hmm. or different things that are like really on a deeper level. And so being in a situation where I'm just constantly banging on doors, just feeling like I'm failing every single day, it just played into all of those underlying causes and conditions. And so trying to be in a, in a situation where all of like the challenge was so great for me at that time and then there was so much on the line and the pressure of that, and then still trying to get some type of a footing in recovery or get get some traction there, but having frequent relapses or slips or moments of of struggling and trying to work work through that with my bishop at the you know at the time and and talking to you about it. But I feel like if you're, it's kind of like quicksand. Like if you're already sinking because your job's not going well and then like the addiction's taking you down more, like it's just, it's, it's hard to like get out of that once you start feeling like you're just drowning or sinking or whatever that 
whatever the yeah. analogy is. That and that's what I feel like I watched you do. You went from like being a little frustrated to being more frustrated to feeling just like buried in all of these feelings of this is not working out. This is not what I thought it would be. This is super hard. So then what happened? I think it was coming to a head. I kind of knew that it had been a few months. I, I knew it was, I mean, hadn't really, I hadn't made any traction or headway with, with my job at that point. And I think I could feel it. People were like, Hey, we got to get some sales going here. We got to get in. And I'm like, I'm working on it. I'm working on my contract. I'm working on stuff. But also just my, my addiction was, it was a struggle and it, the focus and the attention and the energies weren't going into the job like they, they needed to be. And so I think that, um, that was playing into like, that's the honest fact of it is whenever there's an addiction or something like that, it, it affects everything you do. It affects obviously your personal relationships, but also your professional abilities, like trying to juggle that and manage that. And, you know, it affects your work and it, and it for sure affected my work and affected my abilities and affected what I was doing. So I think it just kind of snowballed a lot quicker. And I mean, it just all kind of came to a head. So another thing I just remembered too, this is just coming into my memory is that you had that, the guy that was kind of, he wasn't your boss, but he was kind of like a supervisor that you said he like sounded like he was in the mafia. And, and that was kind of the, the style of that organization. I feel like every organization kind of has like a vibe or a culture. And that culture seemed to be like, the more we pressure you, the more we expect you to drive results. And that was kind of the, the culture there was like, let's just push people harder. Let's give them even more like it just didn't seem encouraging. It seemed more no, like we're just going to pressure and pressure and, and pressure. And I pro- to get the job, I mean, I promised the world because I knew that I had to get, I'm like, I'm your guy and was super convincing. And so I think that, you know, I'd, I'd promised the moon and was under delivering hard throughout a, a lot of corporations or, or many businesses. That's kind of like with sales managers or kind of some of those leadership positions, it's, it's super cutthroat. And it's very just like, we expect this amount of growth or we expect these role results or, or, you're, done. or you're done. We'll yeah. see you later, like make it happen or you're fired. Yeah. So I think I felt, I felt that pressure. I had, I had commit overcommitted myself and, and it just was a tough, tough, tough situation for me. And, and then the addiction was coming up and that was affecting me. That was affecting my work. That was affecting our relationship. And and I think, you know, I at that point was trying to go to meetings and trying to meet with our bishop. Um, we had a great bishop at the time and I was talking to him about it. But he, one thing that I I am grateful for, but at the time was, was tough, was he was straight up with me and really, I, I don't think took, <laughs> he, he just was, I kind of had this like, hey, I've been through this program. I'm working on it. Like I could, could sound kind of put off the vibe, like I got it, you know, and, and Hey, let me just as a formality, come and talk to you. But he saw through all of that. And he's like, well, that's, we're still talking here, man. Like, so you you still have a problem that, that we need to work out. And so he, in a very, very bold, I've never had a Bishop be this bold with me, but I, he did it completely out of love and by the spirit. And it was just like, look, man, the fact, the fact is, is you are still holding on to this. 
you're still, you have not let it go. And in my mind, I was kind of like, well, no, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm going to these meetings. I call people. I, you know, I could recite all this stuff, but he said it in a way that, that was just cutting. And I was thinking about it. I'm like, if I didn't have the spiritual experience that I had, I think that would be, could be one of those moments or stories that you hear where somebody walks out the door of the church and never comes back. Like that could have been that type of moment for me, but he it was done by the spirit and so powerfully that I'm like, he's right. And I remember walking out and talking to friend about it and just being like, he's totally right. I'm, I'm still holding on. I know that. And I remember being like, I could strangle you with my bare hands right now because you kept telling me at home, I really want to quit. Like I, I want to stop doing this. I really want to stop. Like I really am trying super hard. Not that you weren't trying, but to have the bishop call you out like that, where he was like, there's something about this that you still like, or you wouldn't keep doing it. And I was kind of like, wait, you want, you, you, you want to keep doing this? And it sounds so silly. I mean, it wasn't, I wanted to keep doing it. Right. But, but the fact that he was calling you out on, there's something about this that you like, or you wouldn't keep doing it. And. Well, I think the point was like, if you, if you truly don't want to do this, then you would have stopped. Like you would have stopped by now. It sounds silly saying it back, but at the time it was like. It was what I needed to hear at the time. I mean, I th- and that's why I say, like, in a different scenario or a different situation, it could have been taken as, like, totally offensive. But I, d- I felt what he was saying was, was like, you in and of yourself are unable to let this go. And, and there's a power, there's, there's more help that you need or that's available, but you got to ask for it through that. That's kind of the message you I got. Yeah. You've got to want it. And, and I think for me, I had convinced myself, oh, like Neil's trying, he doesn't actually want this hardship. He doesn't want this temptation or problem at all. But hearing him call you out on it and be like, well, you're holding you, but you are still holding on to it. So there is something that you, that you like about this for whatever reason, it just also forced me to look at the reality of like, well, it is in our lives because constantly, because you're not willing to let it go. And I just remember being like so mad because I thought I kept thinking like, oh, he's trying, but he doesn't want to. Like, like you said, there's truth to that. But also just having someone say it like it is was kind of painful for me too. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, that was a hard realization to make in the midst of a hard situation on all fronts. So what did you do? I, I was like, okay, you know what? That's right. Like if I really, if I really was at this point, I would, I just wouldn't be doing anymore. Like if I, I don't know. So I, I went home and I remember praying a really sincere prayer. We had this walk-in closet that I, I went into and I knelt down and I prayed and I just basically said, Heavenly Father, whatever, whatever it takes Whatever has to happen, let it happen so that I can let go of this, which is, is a very scary prayer to pray. Yeah. Maybe you don't do that again without I was consulting. like, I'm like, I was seriously <laughs> thinking we had Annabelle at the time who was maybe like close to 18 months or two. two. I was like, is she going to die? Like, what? you know, I've ser- these were the thoughts that I'm having as I'm praying. I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I felt it in that meeting with the bishop that it's like, this is it. This is the end of the road. Like the, 
this is what you got to do. And so I prayed, prayed that prayer. And then it was like maybe a week later, I'd been working on this contract. I'd been, had conversations with the company that I work in, worked for the managers. It was kind of like a, Hey, here's what you got to do. You're on this plan. And and if these don't, these things don't happen, then, then that's kind of it. About that time I was struggling, struggling with everything across the board, struggling with my addiction. I was struggling with the situation and trying to surrender and, and pray and then struggling obviously with the, with my job and my career. And that is just had come to a head. And then I got, you know, I got the phone call of like, Hey, we're terminating your position. The position with everything had kind of put all the eggs in the basket on this one of like, this is it. This is what God wanted for us. Like this is, this job came into place just at the right time and in this amazing way. And then all of a sudden, and I really did feel like, okay, I see it falling apart around me, but the water's going to, the Red Sea's going to part. That was my thought. Like, this is it. God's going to part the waters. He'll part the waters. And then I get that phone call and it's like, no, you're, you're fired. You're done. <laughs> that was just, I don't know, kind of, I, I, I don't have a phrase for what that feels like or felt like. It wasn't just a, you lost your job. It was like that. And like everything that I thought that I'd been working for my like identity, my, and then from an addiction standpoint, just like had been struggling there. And so that was at, at a, at a low point for me. So it was just life all of a sudden just seemed to the rug just got pulled out from under me at that point. Yeah. I have heard you say more than once that that was the most difficult thing that's ever happened to you. And it's not just because of the losing a job. I think people, tons of people go through that. It just was, it was all of the circumstances and all the buildup and everything that had happened to lead me to believe a certain way or, or that there was going to be a certain outcome. And then on top of that, like struggling in my addiction and, and being at a bottom with that, it just was kind of the perfect storm for like a, yeah, just landing flat on my back moment. Yeah, it was a tough time for me too. We were, I had just gotten pregnant with Lila. We were, I was in Utah with Annie when you called me and told me about that. And then I think you came out to Utah and then we went back and I broke my foot like two days after you lost your job. So I was like newly sick. My husband had just newly pregnant and in that like first trimester sickness and you had just lost your job. And then I broke my foot and I was like, what else could possibly happen right now? And it was a really rough time, but we did pull out of that. And you tried really hard to find another job in the same industry and tried to like go through whatever channels you could to find jobs in the area. We couldn't leave because we had signed a contract for a rental contract. We had sold our house in Utah and then we decided we would rent for a year here to make sure that we liked the neighborhood before we bought another house. And we were just locked into that contract. And I remember trying to, are there any loopholes? Is there any way to get out of this? And it was, I even had my dad look over the contract and it was like, sorry, you guys are stuck for at least another six months. 
Like you can move away, but you will have to pay this rent, which was super high. I want to say it was $3,500 or something. It was a lot per month. So it was like, well, I guess we just have to stick it out here for the next six months at least. Do you want to talk about what happened after that? Trying to find a job or what part of it? Yeah. So just kind of in order to keep moving along, you decided to take a job with. Okay. So doing doTERRA. Yeah. We had this idea of pairing a, the oils, doTERRA, direct sales, multi-level marketing with your blog and then sit and then me handling that side of it. And we loved doTERRA. I had, I had started using doTERRA while I was pregnant with Annabelle. So that wasn't like a, Oh, this sounds like an opportunity. And I don't even know if we like the product, but sure we can make money. It was like, We've been ordering oils for a couple years now. We know we love them more than two years because Annie was two at the time and I had started when I was pregnant. So I it was like, this makes a lot of sense. And we happen to live in the same neighborhood as one of the original U.S. founders of doTERRA, who's one of the most successful people in doTERRA too. And still to this day, I'm so grateful for Boyd that he mentored both of us, but especially you. He kind of yeah. took you under his he, wing and said- incredible. Yeah. And said, like, let's do this. He met with us monthly and we'd come up with a marketing plan and I would do the marketing side of it on my blog and decide how we were going to share the oils. And then you handled everything from there. Like, I didn't even know how to log into our back end because you did all the business side. So that's kind of what we decided to do. But how was that for you? Is the more important question. How did that feel for you? That was super, super hard for me. I did love, I do 100% and I still stand by this. Like I love the products. I love the company. Um, (laughs) Neil religiously takes. I still use my supplements supplements every day. day. Like that company is incredible. The products are incredible. And then we had this, that mentor, our mentor at the time, boy, like I just love and respect that guy. And, and, so many different ways and still do. But I think what was hard for me was just where I was at having felt like I really put all, like I worked, I felt like I worked so hard and there's a whole nother story of how I even got into medical cells and like what it took, it took a ton to even get in. And to, at the time I didn't have a degree and I happened to be able to get in and through a miraculous set of circumstances and felt like so great about it and was so amped about my career and was able to finish school while I worked at all this stuff. I had this whole spiel and then it just felt like it crashed and burned. It was like, and, that was and the like plan. That was the life plan. Crash and burn. Yeah, yeah, that was my plan. That was like- That was our plan. I was like, okay, we got it. Karen's going to stay home. I'm going to be out selling medical devices and that's it. And Mintero was just and supposed to be a that for was supposed fun to be just like a keep, fun on the side type yeah, of deal to keep me busy and but it was it had grown to that point and thank goodness it had and and had worked out but I but as far as me and my identity like my intrinsic value that I tied everything to which is a medical device rep and and you know this whole story of being successful that I had built up just completely crashed and burned. And then not only that, the embarrassing thing, trying to get a job again and not being able to get a job. And I was swinging for jobs that were entry level. And at that point I had like, I don't know, eight years of experience and like felt like I was way overqualified for stuff that I was applying for. Like it was so frustrating and really, really tough. And so then at that point, 
the, the you know there's a the this what I I grew up grew up in Utah and so there's just get hit with tons of direct sales companies all the time especially being in sales I got approached like monthly like hey you know I've got this thing come be yeah. And it was always a lot of times it was a like a money lead in like hey how would you make how would you like to make yeah. hundred thousand dollars next summer or something like that it was always that type of approach so I had this stigma of anything multi level marketing anything direct sales like was an immediate like turn off shut off conversations like people made fun of them all the time especially with like essential oils like I understood and I was like yeah these are way legit but prior to using them. It's like, yeah, I totally made fun of them. Or there was a very lighthearted, jokey kind of- Like, oh, this is snake Like, oil. oh, here's yeah. your voodoo oils, you know? Like, th- so it was the complete opposite of what I was in before. Where Whereas before in a conversation when it was like, hey, what's your name? My name's Neil. Like, what do you do? I do medical sales. Oh, wow, cool. Like, tell me about that. Yeah. Suddenly it went from that to like, hey, my name is Neil. Like, what do you do? Like- Oh, I, I work with this uh, essential oil company, doTERRA, uh, doing direct sales or you know, multi-level marketing. Oh, well. Have a nice day. See you later. Yeah. Or, you know, it, like the conversation would be like, well, okay. Um, anyway. Like, please don't ask me to get because of oils. Exactly. Like, yeah. okay, the, you're going to try and like corner me into hard close me on which we being never in your did. downline or yeah. anything. Yeah. We, which I love about the guy that we worked with. He had a way different approach. It was education. It's like, just educate people, educate people, then and give, serve people. then give them the option. Yeah. You know, and he was super cool. And that's, that's the only reason I could even do it is because the way that he approached it. But I, man, I, that, I, that was so hard because of that identity component is I really believed that that's who I was. I was a medical device rep. I was proud of that. And then all of a sudden to lose that and not only lose it, do something that in my eyes and in, in a lot of the people that I'd come in contact with, it was viewed as like, oh, okay, well, let's, let's change the subject before you try and set me up on your auto ship. Right. So really like 180 degree change where it was like going from cool guy to like, Pretty much the most embarrassing thing you could think. I think you probably would have rather told people that you were like driving a dump truck or something than like probably. pretty much anything. Yeah. And that was hard. Anyway, and which by the which way, it that's like be. That's every little boy's it. dream is driving a dump truck. No. So, well, no, and and just <laughs> the, and I, again, I still, doTERRA is a great company. So there's nothing to be ashamed of at all. On, no, on that, but so. it was in, all in your perception. But it was of, my, per, it was my perception. Oh, now this is my, this is what I do. Now this is, this is the me. culmination. This is my of, identity. Yes. This is what I was, we were talking about this earlier today in preparation for this and like, is this the right topic? And, you know, we really try to be prayerful about what is going to help other people and should we share the story and will it bless other people's lives? And what I think is so interesting is you see in the scriptures and even in our Bible study this week with Noah, with the city of Enoch and then with Noah, it's like God oftentimes has to break things down before he can build them back up. Like he does it with a lot of people in the scriptures. And I feel like with you, that's kind of what I saw. It was like, yes, the city of Enoch was so righteous and they were 
translated, and then you had all the wicked people left with Noah and, you know, the ark. And it was like, hey, get on the ark before <laughs> before the flood comes. And then, you know, the story is that God kind of just wiped everything away and started clean because the people were so wicked that that they could not progress anymore. And I'm not saying you were so wicked like the people of Noah, but I just think you had reached that point, that low point. And then you asked for God's help and said, whatever needs to happen, let it happen so that I can progress. Because down here, like I'm stuck and it's not getting better. And I don't think you expected him to be like, okay, you're going to, now you're going to lose your job. I'm not going to help you. Like, you're not going to be able to get a new one and you're going to have to do something that's really going to humble you and help you replace this identity of medical device is who I am with something that's going to sustain you into who you were really meant to be in this life. Yeah. That's what I watched. And that's what I watched happen no, it did. with you. And that that's what happened. And it was in just an excruciating process, really hard. So there's a book that I really like that kind of brings up this concept of getting validation from God versus your kind of false identity that you create. That's called Wild at Heart. It's by this, the author's John Eldridge. But he brings up this idea that there's things that happen to us that as a man, or he, he kind of speaks to, to men in, in this situation, but there are things that happen to us that create these wounds. And to cover up those wounds, we, we develop these false identities or false selves or, or different concepts of who we are in order to kind of cover that. But in order to truly be whole and receive validation from God, we have to face those things. And that God often takes away that false self. He says, we fight this part of the journey, the whole false self, our lifestyle in quotations is an elaborate defense against entering our wounded heart. It is a chosen blindness. Our false self stubbornly blinds each of us to the light and the truth of our own emptiness and hollowness, says Manning. So he's quoting another, another author. There are readers who even now have no idea what their wound is or even what the false self arose from it. Ah, how convenient the blindness is, blissful ignorance. But a wound left unfelt is a wound unhealed. We must go in. The door may be your anger. It may be rejection that you've experienced, perhaps from a girl. It may be failure or the loss of the golden bat and the way God is thwarting your false self. It may be a simple prayer. Jesus, take me into my wound. Behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. So through this whole process, that was kind of my way. I think, well, God creating that way for me to walk me into one, take away that false self and be able to, to come in and work with what was actually going on and, and what the real struggle was for me and then build me up correctly. So there's a quote that I absolutely love that just aligns perfectly with this. And it's kind of, it's, this is such a cool concept and I think paints it perfectly. It's by C.S. Lewis. It says, imagine yourselves as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. 
but presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts um, abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And I think that that is the process. I think it's the process for all of us, but for, for me, that was, that just puts it perfectly in perspective. I just looked at it and I'm like, okay, like this isn't making sense. Why you're doing things in my life that are crushing and why? And we tried to follow the spirit on all this stuff. And I thought I was doing what was right. And, 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 I, think a lot of times, and I think a lot of times people feel like as long as I do exactly what God tells me it's to gonna do, go perfect then it's going to be smooth yeah. sailing. And it's oftentimes not that way because of the just what you read in that C.S. Lewis quotation where it's like, no, we've got some taking it back down to the studs to do before we can build this into what I see in you. And the potential that you have was just greater than where you were headed, which was a pretty worldly focus of this is what I do. This is who I am. And there's nothing wrong, obviously, with medical device cells or anything, but for you in particular, it was not taking you in a good path to have that be like whole your whole yeah. identity was wrapped up in that. And so what I saw, what I saw that was really cool too with you doing doTERRA was this whole side of you I had never seen before where I learned that you derive so much joy in building other people up, which is not an easy thing, which is not something that comes naturally for everyone, but was such a cool, like hidden talent that I didn't even know that you had. But I watched you find true joy and satisfaction and and a lot of genuine happiness helping other people succeed. And not, yeah. everyone, is and not everyone is good at that. So that was a cool thing to see. And I think too, you've talked about how the humility that you learned from having to switch from cool guy to kind of being embarrassed to say what you do gave you the humility necessary to be ready to share our story of addiction recovery with the world. Yeah, right. Totally. I mean, that was, there were stigmas and things involved with, with doing multi-level marketing or uh, direct sales and essential oils like and it was it's like a mostly like 90 plus percent female dominated dominated industry and i'm like a guy in it and just for so many reasons i felt so uncomfortable about it but i think i got comfortable being uncomfortable and i learned Mm -hmm. to just be like you know what that's a great company it's a great product like this they're doing good i'm educating i'm building other people like what what's what am i why why am i so caught up in this and I'm like, it's ego. It's straight up is all ego. So I, f- I finally reframed it. But I think what that did do is help me get to a point when I faced a similar situation with recovery, where it was like, I'd finally gotten sober, worked through the steps. It had been a year in the program. And we felt this pull to break anonymity and talk about our story. I think it was, think, it was, and it, yeah, it was a strong pull for, like for a, a long time. Yeah. I don't think I would have been able to be at that point to be able to be okay enough with myself to not have 
to face that situation and face that, what I saw, the stigma that I know is there of like, hey, no one wants to raise their hand and say, I'm a pornography addict. In our culture and the culture I grew up with, like, kind of was the problem that everybody had, but kind of conveniently nobody had. But nobody had. But I knew. Mm-hmm. It was like, whoa, they keep talking about this all the time, but nobody talks about this or talks about having it themselves. So it helped to get me to that point to where I was willing to just be okay talking about my addiction and things that were just really low points for me and and work through that. Right. Because I think if you had been in still in a medical device career where you felt like your reputation was on the line, thus our family's ability to yeah, and live totally. in her home or whatever had been like, on the no line way. that may have been yeah. different and the ego probably but I would think have been too yes but i think your your pride had been broken down to a point of hum- like you were so humble at that point where you were like if this is what god wants me to do okay i'm ready i'm here for it and to see how many people i mean we still to this day get emails and dms of people telling us that that story gave them hope and they started going to meetings or they felt like, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't just end this marriage. Maybe there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe this can get better. And just so many cool stories of people who before that felt like they had never seen, I had never seen a positive story about a husband and wife who had come out on the other end of that. Um, especially not on the internet, maybe like in private circles where it's like, okay, well, like since we're all here in this meeting together and we all have the same problem, then we can tell you about Sally and Harry who beat the odds. But even that was, it was like pretty rare to find people who were just willing to be open. And so we really, really strongly felt like that was God's will for us to help others by sharing our story and And then beyond that, it's just been really cool to see all of these opportunities for you to share your talents and gifts with other people in a way that if you had been doing medical device sales, those opportunities never would have come up. We wouldn't be recording a a podcast, you know, a couple times a month together to share these uplifting things or, or things that help people because you'd still be in this other line of work, which again is fine, but I just feel like that was really God's purpose for you and for our family. And it's been so cool to see these like true characteristics of who you really are beyond what do you do come to life in a way that I don't know that the opportunity would have been there had you continued to do what you're doing. One of my favorite books is How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen. He was a thought leader, a genius. He was a Harvard business professor for years and years and years, sold New York Times bestselling books. And this is one of the best, I think, that he wrote. I've read a lot of his books, but this is one of my favorites, probably my second favorite. Anyway, at the end of the book, he shares this. This is what he says, the most important thing you'll ever learn in life. He says, I promise my students that if they'll take the time to figure out their life's purpose, 
they'll look back on it as the most important thing they will ever have discovered. I warn them that their time at school might be the best time to reflect deeply on that question. Fast-paced careers, family responsibilities, and tangible rewards of success tend to swallow up time and perspective. They will just sail off from their time at school without a rudder and get buffeted into the very rough seas of life. In the long run, clarity about purpose will trump knowledge of activity-based costing, balanced scorecards, core competence, disruptive innovation, the four Ps, the five forces, and other key business theories we teach at Harvard. What's true for them is true for you too. If you take the time to figure out your purpose in life, I promise that you will look back on it as the most important thing you will have ever learned. I think that's pretty cool. And I think that you just, you get one life, you know, and, and yes, we believe in eternities and we believe in the afterlife and all of that. But here you get one chance to do what you're supposed to do or be who you're supposed to be. And we talked earlier about people who have the courage to not just chase success exclusively and not that, not that going after your dreams or trying to be the best you can in your career is a bad thing. But there is more to life than how you earn your money. And I feel like Dave was a great example of that and what he chose to do. Do you want to kind of explain like what your brother yeah. Dave did before no, he died? I think he had like a, a year or two before. Like he was very business oriented and was I mean, a real highly, highly successful real estate agent. But for him, I knew he was tapped into this. He's tapped into a greater purpose and a higher purpose. And so I think one thing that he wanted to do was to help others and to mentor others. He like was excellent at that. Um, I'm a product of, of that mentorship. He decided it was like a, I mean, I th- he, he took a pay cut to do it, but wanted to be able to spend time mentoring others and leading others. And so he took a different position um, and one that was more, training up agents and working with, with real estate agents, agents or new, new people and helping them to be successful in their careers. And then that also gave him more time or freed up some time with his family, with his kids, which was really cool, obviously, because he was limited on time, but. And it was almost like he knew, I remember you guys, like you and his friends and stuff talking about, it was almost like he kind of had this sense that he needed to do it at the time that he did in his life because it gave him the last year or two of his life all this extra time that previously he hadn't had with his kids to develop super strong relationships with them before he ended up passing away, which is so cool because how many people will at the end of their life go, I wish I wouldn't have worked as much. Yeah. So many people. And so that's just so cool to me. And I have a friend too, who was recently telling me, yeah, my husband is possibly looking at this promotion, but he's really trying to decide, does he want to take it? Because yes, it'll be more money, but it will require so many more hours of work away from our family. And right now we love that we can go to Disneyland together as a family, or he can go show up at our kids' sporting events or whatever. And I thought, wow, that's really cool that he has that kind of perspective of what is the point of life and will I be happy with a little bit more money or is the right thing for me and my family to actually not progress to the next level in my career and be able to enjoy the life that I have, the family life and the benefits that come with that and a little bit less responsibility. I just think that is such amazing perspective that very few people have. Yeah. 
I think, well, and the world teaches you pretty much the exact opposite. It's all about the hustle. It's like you define it, you decide it, you decide exactly what you want. You're in the driver's seat and you go make it happen. And then you work until you cannot work anymore. Like kind of like the shark tank mentality of like entrepreneurship and sell all that you own and put all your eggs in this basket, be all in and, and just crank it out. And, and that's how you're going to be, then don't get me wrong. It's like, that's, that is accurate. I mean, to be successful at some of those levels, like it does have to be that way. But, but I think that the scripting a lot of times that your intrinsic value is that is mm-hmm. the measure of your life is like, okay, I built this successful business and I made, you know, millions and billions of dollars. All of these people report to me like that's the measure of your life. Like that's what we're talking about as being success. And and I love I love the example like from our scriptures. We we just had we talked about Moses, and in a book of scripture, the pearl of great price that we use, there's a story about Moses being called up to this high mountain and and having a conversation with God, and God calls him his son. He says, "Moses, thou art my son," and he calls him to this work. Then shortly thereafter. Satan shows up and Satan says, Moses, son of man, worship me. And so that distinction, and and he goes on to say like, who are you? I'm a son of God. Uh, I'm not going to worship you. But I think that as from a worldly standpoint, I think that that's kind of a lot of times what, what the question is, is like, that's your value. Son of man, son of the world, working for like medical device rep, like, like that's your identity. That's your intrinsic value. But then it's like, no, I'm a son of God. Like I'm an eternal being. I have, I'm in, I'm a spiritual being having a mortal experience. I'm not like here to define my life and my intrinsic value and my eternal progression by the career path that I chose. One, one is meant to serve and and support just physical necessities and and maybe there are opportunities within that realm to to affect others that's another possibility but but even in that if 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 the focus is so much in the the ego in the self in the the okay I'm going to hand out some information some knowledge or whatever some wisdom but I it's all so I can make some money um you know the the focus is is skewed that's that's not that's not where the intrinsic value is and and validation from god what I like to think of too, when someone says, what do you do? And I try to ask if I, if that needs to come up or if it's just natural in conversation or whatever, I try to specifically say, oh, what do you guys do for work? I try to, first of all, not assume that for sure just the husband's working, but also what do you guys do for work? Because to me, the question, what do you do should be so much more than just what do you do to earn money? When I think about what do I do, what defines me, I hope and I try to make these things define me, that I go to church once a week, that I spend time with my kids. We have family dinner almost every night, and that won't be like that forever because our kids are little and so we can get away with it. But I make dinner for my family. I spend time with my kids. I volunteer right now with the teenage girls in my community once a week. And when I'm not doing that, I'm with you every Wednesday night going to a 12-step meeting. That's a huge part of who I am and who we are as a couple and as a family. 
We go to the temple once a week. Like these are the things that I do that define me that even if blogging went away and even if for some reason we couldn't podcast and social media disappeared and whatever, for some reason the world changed or our ability to provide for our family changed and we couldn't do this anymore to support our family. Those other things that I do with my time would continue to define who I am even if we had to make money a different way. And so that's what I would challenge you to really think about is how are you defining yourself by what you do? Not necessarily just in the way that you make money, because when you die, nobody in heaven is going to say to you, how did you make your money? I have a feeling that when we go back and we meet our ancestors and our heroes and people we read about in books and things like that, people are not going to be like, so what did you do? They're, and and if they ask that question, it's not going to mean, what did you do to put money in your bank account? Maybe they'll ask that, but it will mean, what did you do with your life down there when you were on earth? What did you, what was your impact? What What were your favorite things about the way you spent your time? Who was important in your life? What did you do with that little time that you had on earth? If you think about it in that way, you can really structure your life to be made of things that will not change no matter how you're providing for your family or how your income is coming in to your bank account. What you do should define you based upon the things that you do that really matter most. So that's what I would leave you with is just to think about what do you do that matters? And can you focus your life a little bit more in some of those corners and some of those areas where you would like that to really be the definition of who you are and what you do. Because for all of us, we have room for that. I definitely have room for that. I love to work. I love the story of hard work. And I always love a good somebody started something from nothing entrepreneur story. I totally love those and believe in those and was raised on those. But at the end of the day, too, my parents did a great job of teaching me, you can't take that stuff with you. Stuff does not go with you. Bank accounts don't go with you. Titles and jobs and accolades, none of that goes with you. It's just the memories you made, the relationships you had, the experiences you had, and what you put into the world. That's all you get to take with you in the next life. I think takeaway point from from me and in, in understanding is after seeing, after going through everything with my brother and and seeing a lot of how people reacted and what they said about him after he died. Mm -hmm. It was so, so powerful to see. He was highly successful as an agent, but I don't think it was once mentioned in none of those awards or numbers or anything that like nobody brought any of those through any of those out. That wasn't the focus, but it what, but what was talked about was, the service component, like the love, the, the genuine interest that he had in other people and in the service of trying to just really help them. And with, with no, there was no return. There was no like, okay, I, I get something, I get money or I get something out of helping this person. It's just, just sheer service. So I've, in seeing that I've, I really, I think that so much of, of what we're doing here comes down to, and, and in, I think these are eternal principles, love and service. I think it's loving others and serving others. That it will be the measurement of our lives and, and our impact on others will be 
did I love other people? Did I serve other people? And it's, it's, a, it's a true principle of Jesus Christ, feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know, feed my sheep. Are you sure you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. It says it three times, feed my sheep. So I think that's what it what it comes down to. And to do that properly and to, to be able to, to devote that type of love to someone, we have to, to love ourselves and understand who we truly are as children of God and understand that we're loved instead of having this wound inside that we're trying to fill or cover up with with the false self, with these false identities, these things that, that become the very barrier to us being more loving and more service-oriented with other people. So I had to go through my own journey of that. It's something that I'm still constantly working on trying to be better at is being how can I love and how can I serve? But I think the love and the service is really what it what it comes down to. Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow Messages. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow. Subscribe to our Apple Podcasts and rate and review us if you like us. And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox. And we'll email you every time there's a new episode.